Hello and welcome to this Arena Special in association with Dublin Book Festival from the One Windmill Lane venue in Dublin. Tonight on the programme we will be speaking to two of Ireland's leading writers, recipient of the Rooney Prize, Dublin Literary Award and the Goldsmith Prize. Mike McCormick will tell us about his latest book, This Plague of Souls, while Paul Lynch will bring us into the frighteningly recognisable world of his Booker Prize shortlisted novel, Prophet Song. And we'll have music from singer-songwriter Kriya. Let us start with Paul Lynch, who's sitting in front of me here on the stage in One Windville Lane, already successful author of critically acclaimed and prize-winning novels when his literary reputation skyrocketed, one would have to say, I think, thanks to the latest novel, Prophet Song, being shortlisted for the Booker Prize. He is now one of three Pauls on that shortlist for the prestigious prize, including our own Paul Murray, the American Paul, a man called Paul Harding, the other finalists, not a Paul among them, being Chetna Maru, Jonathan Escoffery, and Sarah Bernstein. Prophet Song is a nightmarish vision of what just might happen as a society collapses, as seen through the eyes of a mother fighting to hold her family together. Please welcome Paul Lynch. I know, I know radio presenters can be given to the odd bit of um, exaggeration, but skyrocketed, I think, is, is probably fair enough. Certainly the experience of the last year and the, those months since the long list announcement to the short list announcement, it, it must be, have been a whirlwind, Paul. It is a whirlwind. Um, I haven't done a tap of writing in, in about eight weeks or so, maybe even longer. It's, uh, I mean, I think every writer will admit to hoping at some point that they might long this for the Booker Prize. Um, or shortlisting is sort of, you know, it, it, it's a sprinkling of fairy dust that you don't expect to happen. And it's happened, and mm. it's been marvellous. And, yeah, I mean, I, there's a, I'm getting a lot of, a lot of requests for, you know, interviews, and it's pr it's truly international. That's 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 where you see the impact of it. Is is the requests are coming from all around the world? And have you begun to see the effect on the back catalogue at this point? Even my first two books were were becoming hard to get, shall we say, at this point. Red Sky Morning and The Black Snow, which maybe some people remember them. Um, uh, they were published 2013 and 14, and they're they're being republished now mm. uh, with lovely brand new spanking covers uh, that make them look very up to date. So yeah, it's, it's very welcome. hope they aren't getting all the covers ready because we want to leave space potentially for Booker Prize. Stop it now. No. Stop and it now. Let's, let us not count let's chickens not there. before they hatch. But they might hatch. Let us wait and see. Um, anyway, let, let's get to the novel. We'll come back to the, the prize winning and our prize nominations and what that might do. Um, Prophet Song, uh, The Guardian referred to it, I love this, as the Irish offspring of The Handmaid's Tale and 1984. <laughs> that's, that's quite a pairing, it has to be said. But I love the Irish offspring is kind of the important part in some ways of that, of that statement to me, because that's where you bring us. You bring us to a very plausible Dublin in a very frightening situation, a very plausible Ireland in a very frightening situation through the eyes of a family, bring us into the world, yeah. particularly of the Stack family and where we find them at the beginning of the novel, Paul. You know, when, when, when you start writing a novel, very often you can keep in your mind one or two or three sort of totemic books that can serve as reference points for you. And I realized when I was writing this book that actually I didn't have that. that, that I'd somehow sort of 
found my way into completely new territory and uh, that books like 1984 or The Handmaid's Tale or even The Road, which gets mentioned a lot around this mm. book, they, they weren't in my thoughts. I had, I was just, I, I felt I was, I was on my own sort of highway here doing, doing my own thing. And, but I mean, we, we're, in, we're in a Dublin that is, you know, to all intents and purposes, the Dublin of now, or at least it seems to be the Dublin of now. When Ailish Stack, who's, she's a mother of four and she's answering the door to the GNSB, that's the first sense that things are not quite the same. The GNSB? The Garda National Services Bureau, and, you know, they, they are Ireland's newly formed secret police. And, but, you know, there, there are a couple of guards who knock on the door and have the chat with her, and is Larry in, you know, and she says, yeah, no, he's out, you know, can I help you, you know, and it's... Larry it, is uh, her husband. Everything seems quite normal, and Larry is a trade unionist for the TUI, and they want to speak with him, and, you know, Eilish, they have a normal family, they've got four kids, they've got three, three of whom are teenagers, she works for a pharmaceuticals company. Life, is, life seems to be as perfectly normal, except just that in the background, Ireland seems to have elected a populist government, and things are beginning to slide. Mm. So there's a sense of democratic norms are just beginning to slight, slip away gradually. The media is becoming controlled very, very slyly. Um, multinationals are starting to pull out. And so there's this sense, you know, early on in the book of, well, this, but this, this couldn't happen here. It couldn't happen here, mm. surely. You know, this won't be allowed to happen. This is, but it does. And it happens slowly and insidu insidiously, and you kind of don't notice it creeping up, this totalitarian state, yeah. essentially. But it struck me that while that political aspect of the book is certainly important and important to how the plot moves forward, seeing this through the eyes of Eilish Stack is a vital part of the story. Of course, yeah. No, you know, when, when I think of a book like the Iliad, how it... A great, a great work like that, how it foregrounds the politics, it foregrounds the heroics, it foregrounds the war. But I'm interested in, in what goes on behind that, the sort of the hidden life of unrecorded acts. And so when I think of Eilish, this is what we, what Eilish is who we don't see on the news. Eilish and the life that we inhabit, the family that we, that we travel through this book with. This is, this is, it's the space that, that, journalists can't truly enter into. It's a space where fiction can enter. And, and, and so what I wanted to do was to just enter into the family life, completely inhabit it. Just the small details, the, the rows, you know, the, 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 just the annoyances, Eilish having to deal with, with, with the kids. And of course, Larry, Larry is taken in by the GNSB and, and he doesn't return. And I'm not giving away too no. much by that. But that does happen early on. But suddenly she has to deal with that on top of the fact that she's got teenagers and they're trying to process this as well. And so you've got these sort of layers occurring where there's like normality is always sort of unrolling, but it's always there. But at the same time in the background, you know, there is, a, there is an enormous unraveling. There's this, is it Eilish who actually says happiness is in, or happiness hides in the humdrum? Yeah, she's looking in the mirror and she's, she's seeing she has this sort of epiphany. She's standing in the mirror and she sees all the times that she looked, her, looked at herself in the mirror and, and took everything for granted. 
she sees the children going in and out of the house and dropping their school bags and their shoes and, you know, Larry in the car and getting annoyed, calling for the kids because Larry's no longer there. Mm. And it's, it's, it's entering into that sense of, of the moment. And there's, there's something that I was thinking about when I was writing this is, you know, ostensibly the book does seem like a, a dystopian novel. And I've often thought about this, that that is, books that call themselves dystopian, there's often that sense of the paper mache world about them, as if they've been designed for a political mm. reality, for, for the writer to sort of chase after a political point that they want to make. And I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to explode the form. I wanted, I wanted to turn it into a deeply realistic form. And so the realism in this book is very, it's very intense. Like the, you know, the sentences take you right down to the beating heart of the moment with Eilish and the family all the way through. Yeah, and, and that, that political side of it, you don't get into why this crackdown has happened. We, we don't get into what the lead-up to all of this... Completely pointless. Yeah, you, you clearly, as this a book writer... chasing after universals. Yeah, you weren't, you weren't interested in no. that. You were interested in the story of this family and, and where they're going and how they're going to handle this situation. But as, as one reads, certainly as, as I read it, I kind of, God... This, this could this could happen. This yeah. could happen tomorrow. This could happen. This could be happening right now, and I'm, I, I'd be kind of unaware of it. Um, did you have any sense of in in the whatever political climate we were in at the moment of writing this? Had you got fears around this? Was there something like that scratching away at you that that propelled you? And yes, the family story, but the family story in this political situation. You know, like I started reading. I reread Steppenwolf by Herman Hesse in 2018. And that was a book I'd read in my 20s and had a sense. There was a, there, there was a passage in that book where, where Harry Holler in, in that novel, 1927 in his Germany, and he's looking out upon the political chaos, the sense of complete upheaval, the sense of, of, of xenophobia that's really parading openly on the streets. And he just says, the next war is coming, it's inevitable. And I remember reading that in my early 20s, thinking, what an extraordinary moment to be in, to be able to see that and witness it. Because at the time, it was the 1990s, very sedate, you know, history had ended according to Fukuyama, so it seemed as if we were living in very dull times. But I reread that book in 2018, just before I started writing Prophet Song, and I was struck with, with just that chill of recognition that I'm now looking out at, at, this, at this world. And... You know, we have lived through an unraveling of sorts, and I, I, you know, I didn't set out to sort of grab all this onto the page, but it, it seems to, I wanted to see into the modern chaos, chaos somehow with this book, and I realized as, as I was writing it that if I specified the politics, then the book would be about those, that type of politics. It would be about that, mm. whereas I realized that what I was really chasing after was the universal aspect of this story, that, that it's always the same... The politics can change, but it's always the same methodology that gets us to this place where, where Eilish and her family are subjected to what they're subjected to. And so I was, for me, it was more interesting to pay attention to their life mm. and what it is they end up having to take on. Yeah, and, and what they're subjected to is that we have the dad who's, who's missing, who may turn up at some point or may not turn up at some point. We just, we just don't know as we're reading you know, there's, there's a strong kind of plot element there that you, you have that wonder there. There's a, an older son who similarly could or may or may not be involved in, in rebel activity. Mm. We, we don't know because there's, there's the government forces, there are the rebel forces. But it, it really did strike me that, yes, you're writing about a Dublin. 
yes, you're writing about an Ireland of some kind. But I remember hearing you, you spoke to me about historical fiction and how, you know, when you write about uh, anything that's in the past, of course you're writing about the present moment. It's a so, refraction. Yeah, you, somehow yeah. today is going to be present. So when you're writing about today's, or whatever moment this is, this Ireland, this Dublin that's in, in Prophet Song, to what extent do you think you were writing about other conflicts, other situations in other parts of the globe by concentrating on this imagined Ireland? When, when, when we were getting ready to publish this book, um, there was an epigraph that I wanted to use from Cormac McCarthy's The Crossing, where the, the, the line says something to the effect of, you know, that people believe that the narrator's task is to choose from the many stories that are available but really the task is to, is to make many of the one. And that was the goal. And, and we, we, couldn't get, we couldn't get the line permission. We couldn't get the permission because Colin McCarthy was dying um, at that time and, uh, and sadly he passed away. But that, I realized that that's what I was doing, that, that the book was able to speak to multiple political realities all at once. And so that sort of... That, that sort of that sort of sense of the timeless in the present, I mean, is it counterfactual? Is it set in the future? I don't specify. It, mm. it, the closer you get to the mythic, the more freight that it can carry, the more universal it can become. But there's a moment in the book, so society is breaking down, decisions have to be made, families decide, will we, will we leave? Will we go to relations who are living, in, in Eilish's case, in Eilish's case, she has a sister in Canada, that, could she get out, could she get to there? What does she do about Larry, her husband? What does she do about all of that? But there's a moment when there's this idea of things are pretty bad. There, there are bombs. You don't know what's going to happen if you mm. go down to the shop. You don't even know if the shop's going to be there and if there's going to be anything in the shop when you get there. But there's, there's talk about a humanitarian corridor being opened from Lansdowne Road through the port tunnel. And I have to say, my blood froze as, as I read that because the obvious resonance is in multitudinous areas of the world, this very moment, this very day, this very week, this very month, this very year. Uh, it really did chill me to the bone. This is, this is this, I mean, it's one of the kind of the central ideas in the book. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, Prophet Song, you're saying this is going to happen in the future. And, you know, what Eilish comes at, she has this recognition later in the book when she's, when she's been really, truly put through the ringer. And she realizes that you know, the end of the world is actually always a local event. That what the prophets are singing about is not the end of the world, it's the end of your world. It comes to your town, it comes to your city, it comes to your country. And, and for everybody else, it's a rumor or it's something we watch on the news. And this is what we're doing now. And this is what the book speaks to, mm -hmm. is the timelessness. This is what happens in Prophet Song has happened in the past, it's happening now, and it will continue to happen. And that's, that's, that's one of the sort of the, the central ideas that it explores. There's another character, Eilish's father has dementia. He, he the granddad, I keep referring to him as the grandfather of the book because I think of it in terms of Eilish's children. Simon, yeah. Yeah, he, he's there uh, and, and there are times when he's, he's grappling with the past. And there was something, I wondered what you were getting at there. Yes, the, the, the ideas around dementia, we were speaking about this beforehand, you were saying, well, no, you hadn't any, per, experience of that within your, your life but you know the way the dementia is, is portrayed is really realistic but I wondered what you were playing with with that his the the past that he can't quite grab onto and then this are we in the present or are we in the future 
that Eilishkeit can't quite yeah. grab onto. What were the ideas you had around those two things rubbing shoulders with you know, each other? On, on one level, on, on, on the main level, Simon is, represents one of the main major obstacles that prevents Eilish leaving. You know, she, her sister says to her from Canada, you know, you need to leave, you need to get out. You know, history is a silent record of those who don't know when to leave. Wonderful sentence. Or th those who didn't know when to leave. Yeah. And Eilish says, yeah, that's all, that's all well and good for you, but what if, what if dad falls and breaks a hip, what then? You know, and she's completely enmeshed in, the, in this world where her daughter plays hockey, you know, her son's doing the lean cert, and her father, Simon, has, 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 you know, he has dementia. And what's really interesting about that is he has these extraordinary moments of lucidity. So the past is sliding, and his grip on the past is sliding, and the past that's sliding from him is the past that we know now. It's, it's the mm. world of liberal democracies that we have, we have grown, grown up with, and that's, that's, but that's beginning to slide away. There's a transition occurring, and yet he has these moments of astonishing clarity where he comes around and he says, Eilish, you need to get out. This is happening now. You, it's, it's not happening in a book. It's actually happening now. You need to go, go to Canada go to Anya. And she says, but I can't. Yeah, and, and, and we have to read the book to find out how that all resolves itself. So the very notion of freedom, of liberal democracy, is, is a very important uh, idea behind the book. But in your own life in the last year, yes, the great joy of the, the Booker Prize long-listing, the great joy of the reaction to this book, I'm, I'm sure. But then you had an illness out of nowhere that, yeah. that came at you. I mean, freedom must have been a lovely concept, but life, physical life, was something that you, you had to confront, the possibility that this was the end of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, mean I, I was diagnosed with kidney cancer last year. Um, it's a year later, and I've been told that I'm effectively cured. Today, in fact. Yeah, which is extraordinary. Um, I mean, I, I, I had a kidney removed. I've had... 12, 12 months of chemo, of, of immunotherapy. Um, and I mean, I was declared cancer free when the kidney was removed. And, but it's an extraordinary thing when it happens because your, your skin is just stripped off you. You know, that invincibility that you thought you had. You know, I was in my mid forties, you know, I was uh, reasonably fit, was in the gym all the time. You know, I ate a very clean diet. I looked after myself. So I just thought this, that's the last thing that's ever going to happen to me. These things happen to somebody and, else. And, and, you know, all, all you need to get, to, you know, to get what I had is, is, a, kid, is a kidney. That's, that's the, unfortunately the truth of it is we're all susceptible. And, um, but, you know, it, it, a year later has been a profound year for me. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm better for it. There's no doubt about it. I see the world very differently. Um, you know, I think if you're a writer, you do look at the world in a, you know, you, you tend to come at it more with a deeper sense of awareness. Say, we're kind of deconditioned a little bit, writers. You know, to write a novel, you know, like Mike McCormick, uh, so I'm looking across over there. Hi, Mike. You know, to write like Mike, you need to be deconditioned. The veil of familiarity needs to have, been, needs to have fallen away. That, um, and then to go through what I've been through, that, that gets deepened again. Um, well, you know, I, you said to me, don't go anywhere near saying anything about prizes. It's not about even counting chickens. No, I don't even, don't even count the chickens that I have hatched. I don't even hatched. think about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I just feel very fortunate to be where I am now. Paul, it's great to have spoken to you about the book at this moment in time. You're going to stay with us. We're going to speak with Mike, and we're going to come back to the two of you then a little bit later on. Uh, Paul's book, Prophet Song, is published by One World. And thank you very much to Paul Lynch for that conversation. <laughs>
Time for some music now. And Crea, singer-songwriter from Bray, County Wicklow, no stranger to the Irish music scene, released two number one albums during her time with the indie band Wyvern Lingo. She's also collaborated with artists such as Denise Chaya and Hosier. Uh, the first song that you're going to... Uh, the first, uh, This is your first solo project. It's, this is what this is, Crea. Um, the Callows is the first song that you're going to sing for us. Tell us a little bit about that. Sets us up very nicely, I think, for the West of Ireland man that we'll speak to after the break. That's right, yeah. Well, my mother is from Shannon Bridge, County Offaly. I don't know if there's any Midlanders in the audience today. Um, oh, there are. Yeah. <laughs> the entire Shannon Bridge travelled up tonight. <laughs> but um, I'm, I love that part of the country. I think it's a really underrated part of the country. Um, and particularly where she's from, where the Shannon uh, is, is really beautiful and wide at, at Clan McNoise, which you might know. Um, there's a, an, a grassland area called the Callows, and it's where the, the river floods, the sort of marshy grasslands, and it's just... It's really beautiful and really tranquil and it inspired this song that I wrote. Well, let's have it then. The Callows from Korea. Thank you. This loneliness won't let me be The Callows are written and performed by Korea. We'll have more music from Korea later in the show. Back with more from Arena Live at the Dublin Book Festival. Mike McCormick talking about his new novel, This Plague of Souls, after this break. And welcome back to One Wind Middle Inn in Dublin and this Arena special programme coming to you live from the Dublin Book Festival. Now, before the break, we spoke to Paul Lynch about his novel Prophet Song, which is shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and we will chat with him again a little later, as I said. But now it's time for the second author of the night for us this evening. This, this Plague of Souls is Mike McCormick's follow-up to the award-winning, multi-award-winning Solar Bones. In this Plague of Souls, we hear the story of Neelan, a Mayo artist, possibly turned scam artist, who returns home after his trial collapses following a long time on remand. His wife and his child have disappeared. Mysterious stranger keeps ringing him, offering information about his family in exchange for details of Neelan's activities. All of this is played out against the backdrop of a national emergency where a growing sense of threat pervades and questions are as potent as answers. In fact, there probably are more questions in this novel than there are answers, I think. Please welcome Mike McCormick. Mike, we're, we're, we're in the west of Ireland, uh, as we often are in your fiction, and certainly as we were in, in Solar Bones. We're, while we don't have the interior monologue of our Marcus Conway, which we got in Solar Bones, we're certainly very close to being inside the head of this Neelan chap. He, he's the one that's going to guide us around, guide us on this journey through this sometimes indefinable space and place. Yeah, we're very close to him, all right. And um, so he has to, we have to find him interesting in some way or, or other. Um, 
that's the difficulty with, with, uh, with a novel like this, is if you don't find this protagonist interesting that the book is won or lost. So hopefully, hopefully we, we, we do find him interesting. Um, I think you're right when you said that you started off by saying that there was, there was more questions than, than answers in this book. Um, there was a, one of the things I kind of set myself up, one of the things I wanted to do establish it, uh, when, I, when I was writing this book was, was could I write a book that I couldn't explain, uh, a book that I couldn't talk about, uh, a book that was divorced from its own, and this is my stab at that. And, <laughs> and um, my, my, um, my editor at, uh, at Tramp Press says, thanks, Mike, it'll be easy to sell that. And I wanted a book, a book I can't explain or a book I can't talk about. But there are so many things in the book that I, that, um, that I, 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 don't, I, I don't understand myself, uh, that I don't find. Um, I think they're clear. I think the book is clear, but I, there's, there's a lot of questions about it that I can't, that I can't answer. A lot of questions about it that you can't answer, a book that I can't talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike McCormick, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it is. It, because at one level, it, it, not unlike uh, Paul's book in, in some ways, there's, there is a story and, and a plot that propels us through this. I mean, this person we don't know on page one arrives to his home, uh, or arrives to a house, in fact, uh, we know nothing about him. There's all, nobody and almost nothing in the house. I mean, <laughs> I wondered, did you actually start with that blank a page, that blank a space, that blank a notion? Did you start there? And when you do, how much patience do you have to have for Neilan to unfold in front of you? Yeah, I did. Uh, my, my, books, <clears throat> my books always start with a, a visual image. Uh, I can't think I've ever... So I can't think of any of the books that have started with a voice or a, or a sound. They've always started with a visual image. And this one was, uh, this one began with a man crossing the threshold, opening the door of a house, turns out to be his own house, and the next thing his phone goes off in his, in his, in his pocket. Uh, there seems to be some sort of causal relationship between crossing the threshold and his phone going off, I think, I don't know. Um, if he had stood outside, would the phone have gone off? I don't know. But, he, but the phone does go off he, uh, as he go, comes inside. And, um, and that sets the terms of the book. From there on, it's an exploration of who he is, why is he there, what has he done, and um, the tone of the book, even the sentence structure, and the themes of the book are all established in that, in that opening kind of visual image and that. Yeah, but it, it, it would be wrong to give the impression that what you do then uh, over, over the next, uh, whatever, 170 or 80 pages of, of the novel is that you unfold perfectly who he is, why he's there, and what has happened to him in, in his life. It's not about that. It's a, it seems to me it's about something else, and you probably can't answer that question. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, the, this, is a, this book... Um, forms a part of a meditation on, on is it the second part of a meditation on, on, on men building the world, how, about, how men go about building the world, and how they go about building worlds that they can't live in. And um, I became very interested during, a, during part of the composition of this book. It began a long time ago, back in, back in 212, I think. Uh, I, I'm, I'm still in the process of, of tidying up after it in, in my, 
my computer in my office and that, and I noticed that the first files on this uh, go back to 2.12, which is about 11 years ago. And there's a marked difference in, in what happened. Uh, when I started out being a meditation or being an examination of how worlds come apart, how they fall apart, but as, uh, as I progressed through the book, as I stuck with it uh, down the years and that, it became, a, it became a, a, an examination of how do we put the world back together? How does, it, how does it, when it has fallen apart, when it's gone to a shambles, how do we put it back together? Who's going to stand up and put it back together? Who's going to, who has the right to put it back together? And at what expense is that done? And that became a part of the, this this book's uh, a thematic part of it. The book is, in some ways, it's about two men go looking for something, okay? So if I was asked to explain it, I'd say it's about two men who go looking for something. One goal is looking for his wife and his child, and the other seems to go looking for God. And God says, I can't help you. Um, and um, that's really what leads them to this those two, those two desires lead them to this conversation in, in a hotel lobby. And the other man, Neilan is the man looking for his wife and his child. The other man is this guy who's on he the phone. Yeah, he seems to, he seems to, he's got a guy who's been making phone calls to him and who seems to hold out the promise to him that if you come and talk to me, I can tell you where your wife and child is. Uh, all, I want is uh, all I want is a few pieces of information, and when he gets there, it turns out that he wants a lot more than that. He wants Neelan to admit to certain things, uh, and, and Neelan is, just goes, I can't help you. He doesn't deny that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't claim any responsibility for them, but he doesn't deny that he did, that he did them either. Uh, so at the end of the book, I'm no, I'm no, you know, I'm no wiser at the yeah. end of the book whether he did these things or not. Yeah, because I don't think I'm giving anything away to say that there are questions around cybercrime, uh, certainly in the novel, that those yes. things are, are raise their head. There's, a que there's questions about, about, about um, uh, yeah, about, about identity theft and that. That's a, that's a, that's a story that, you know, that, that I have a kind of a personal involvement with. My, the advance for my, for my very first novel was stolen. Okay, so this goes back about 25 years. Um, it, 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 it comes from a time when, when publishers posted you checks and they dropped on the, uh, on the, on the hall floor. Um, so the, the advance for my first, for my first novel was, was stolen and I had to go chasing it. And I ended up going to a bank and finding they had Xeroxed an identity. They had photocopied an identity and there was this lad looking back at me whom I did not know for Adam but he's, he's, he, was, he was Mike McCormick. And, um, and the, had the cheque been cashed? And oh, cheque had been cashed and gone and everything. And, um, but I got it back. Uh, I got it back through, uh, I just happened to mention to a lawyer, and he says, I'll sort that out for you. And sure enough, he did. It, 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 uh, he, he sorted it out with a couple of phone calls on that, um, whereas I, I really did not know what to do or where to go with it or that. Uh, so that's kind of a... There is a there is a, yeah. um, a, a, a a personal kind of a link with that theme in, in yeah. that respect, which which kind of uh, but we are we are in the west of Ireland. I mean, there's no question we, the landscape, the way you describe where we are. You know, there's no question yeah. we are in Mayo. Yeah, we are. There's no denying it. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, I, I I say it, you know, and I sit down to I sit down to start and write, and there's this pull in the steering of my pen. It takes off towards Mayo. 
and that's fine. Uh, I, I seem to have uh, I seem to have found it quite a fruitful place. So mm -hmm. I think I'll keep returning to it. Um, I, I consider myself very lucky. I think it's a it's. I don't know if it's a Mayo that exists, but it's an idea of Mayo that 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 my, my that my books keep returning to. Uh, Mayo is a place of a beautiful county of many moods and topographies and geographies and everything, but there's also a psychic Mayo that it keeps returning to. It's it's. Um, I've always wondered why Mayo had so many penitential shrines. Um, why did we see ourselves in such need of penance? You know, I, I've lived all my life. I, I've lived a big part of my life under Croke Patrick mm. as a child. Literally, you could open my back door and run out, run just keep running in a straight line and take you right to the top okay. of the, right to the, to the top of the hill. So to the top of Croke Patrick. So. All yeah, of those things are deep in the in my idea of Mayo. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you've got Crook Patrick hanging over you, you can hardly ignore it when when it comes to your writing. But I, I wonder, no. you know, the, the the theft of the identity theft is important in this. There's something happening in the background as well in terms of the country, not unlike Paul's. But you don't fully explain. But there's some major event that is about to unleash itself potentially on the country that you don't go too far down. How wild a west! is the West of that imagination of yours? I, I think the West is, the West is a standpoint, uh, is, it's an imaginative standpoint, and the world looks bigger from there. And by that I mean, when, when I was growing up, all, all my family are, when I, when I was growing up, my, all my extended family, my uncles and aunts, they're all in America, and they're all in, they're all in America, and they're all in England, and a couple in Europe. And that. So when I was a child in the west of Ireland, my concept of my family spread out all over the world. You know, it was, it was very far flung. It wasn't, it wasn't um, uh, we grew up with very big horizons. My family stretched from, from there to Kilburn to New York mm. and all sorts of things. So the, the west of Ireland was actually a very big place, even though ge geographically, even though geographically it was small. And, uh, and that, relative to the rest of the world, to me, actually, it was immense. Uh, I, I used to drive from, we used to drive from, from Lewisburg up to my mother's place in North Mayo uh, in Dahoma, uh, and that was a three-hour drive, and that seemed to me like, you know, we were crossing the Mojave Desert or something like that. It was a huge trek mm. in that. But, um, but psychically and imaginatively, it was absolutely huge. We... we um, we, we, this, just the sense of my family spread out uh, all over the world was, was, was absolutely big. That, that West of Ireland aspect of the, the fact that you bring in the identity theft and the Czech theft, the advanced theft, there's one other aspect of the book that echoes your own life totally in some ways. Neelan's dad died in the story when Neelan was in, in leaving certificate year. I think if it's, it's the specifics of that in the book as well. It's a direct reflection of your own. How does the autobiographical life feed its way into a story in, in, in that way. Can you elucidate on that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, the geography of Mayo is, is autobiographical. I know, I know Mayo, but, and the one incident, I know the, 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 the topography, the geography of Mayo, that's one aspect, but there, there is another, the other autobiographical part of it is, the, is on the death of, of, uh, of Neelan's father. And this is a, I, I've written about it two or three times, not that often, but it's an incident that, 
it's an incident that, that, that in, in a sense, you would not chance as a fiction writer. My father went out one night, and uh, a man he went out to a pub one night, and he, he, one of the people he was in the pub with got a heart attack, died very soon after that. My father went to his removal a couple of nights later, and he came home, and he, and he died uh, uh, in his bed. And he was, he was uh, in his late 40s. And that was an incident that, you know, that's, that's something that's, uh, that's, a, that's a, uh, it, it has given me one of my themes. Uh, fathers are a recurring, fathers and sons are a recurring theme in my work. And that my fathers are, that doesn't set me apart from in many another Irish writer. Fathers and sons are something that we do. But I think my fathers are slightly different in that they're well-meaning, good, decent yeah. men in that. They're not the... Yeah. sullen, oppressive fathers that sometimes No, they're not populate. the fathers of Irish fiction that we always get. Mm. And, and a final question on that, I don't mean this in any glib way at all. Is it a way of, through fiction, keeping your father alive to others? I'm sure he's alive within your heart and soul all the time. When parents die, they often remain part of us. Is it a way of keeping him alive to others by having him in the books? Not that it would be as crass to go, I'm going to put my yeah, dad in um, here now. Of course. I think the I think it's a hankering after, uh, uh, you know, a continual hankering after, after, uh, after a father and a father figure. You know, you have to distinguish the, the man that stands up and walks around, the Mike McCormick that stands up and walks around, and then the Mike McCormick that sits down to write novels. And they're two very different people. Um, one thinks about other things, and the other fellow's just getting on with his life. I don't go around thinking about the loss of my father or anything like that. Um, I think of my father, but, but, uh, but when, it's when I sit down and start writing, it seems to be a thing that recurs again. Not, not, not too much, but now and again, enough for it to make it uh, a kind of a, an ongoing ticking presence in that in my work, yeah. I'm sure the Mike McCormick that, that walks around is quite happy for the Mike McCormick that sits down and writes <laughs> to be able to, to talk about his dad in that way, and it's certainly very touching to, to read about it in the way that you do it. So Mike's book is called This Plague of Souls, published by Tramp Press, wonderful independent press that we might talk a little bit before that about in, in the third part of the programme. But before that, let's go to another song from our musical guest this evening, singer-songwriter, Korea. Um, we're going to take another track from the EP, The Callows. This one is called Grief. Mm, finding your way through the winter Feeling your hands coarse and splintered Have you felt the time pass by These December skies Thank you. Kriya with the song Grief. And we'll be back with more from the Dublin Book Festival, Mike McCormick and Paul Lynch after this break. And welcome back to the Dublin Book Festival in this arena special coming to you live from One Middle Middle Lane in Dublin. And I'm delighted to have Paul Lynch and Mike McCormick both together on stage. Uh, yep, thank you very much. I'm going to quote you, Mike McCormick, <laughs> on Paul Lynch. This is what you said. And at the occasion of the, the launching of his book, Grace, uh, 
Paul Lynch doesn't look like the kind of guy that writes novels set in Donegal, or at least historical fiction version of Donegal. He looks more like an Italian actor or an off-duty musician. Did I write that? Oh, I put it to you, Mike McCormack. <laughs> Do you stick by those words as we look at him here in his very fine suit and orange socks for the listeners at home? Black suit, orange socks. Black suit, orange socks. I'm on board with the orange socks. It's the, shoe, <laughs> the shoes that, give, that, that, that I'm not so gone on. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, Paul, I, I, I am halfway through Paul's book, uh, through Paul's current book at, at the moment and that, and it's a terrific read. And... Uh, and go back and, and discover it. Go back and discover his catalogue. I had the I had the pleasure of uh, uh, pleasure and privilege of of launching Grace, um, about what, four or five years ago. Six years ago. Yeah. Years ago. And that's that is it. That that's that book has a physical presence, and uh, and uh, just a vividness that. Uh, it, that, I think that was the book where, where Paul kind of jumped out at me and go, all oh, right, he's, he's onto something here. Uh, so no, it doesn't matter that he looks like an off-duty musician. He's, he's, he's a brilliant writer. <laughs> well, I kind of am an off-duty musician. Um, just, you know, in my, I have a few guitars, so that, you know, that, that, that kind of counts. Though, uh, so is there another whole imaginative and creative life I, to I Paul Lynch? I think at one point I would be a musician, but that, we, we, we shan't speak of that What now. were you playing, guitar? I was, I, was in a, I was in a few bands in my time, yeah, I was a guitar player. What sort of thing did you do? Oh my gosh, let's not go there, let's move on. <laughs> Please let us go there, your <laughs> questions are much more interesting, Mike. Way more interesting, <laughs> <Yeah>. on, Mike. <laughs> um, you, and you mentioned to me during uh, the break that, in fact, Grace had won the, the Kerry... Uh, Book of the Year, wasn't it? It was the Kerry novel. Oh, it, won, it was the, the Kerry Group Irish novel of the year. Yeah, because uh, yeah. obviously the Booker Prize shortlisting is such a big thing. But Mike has all the all the gen on what to do with award wins. I remember you telling me, Mike, about the moment you heard that Solar Bones had won what was the International Dublin Literary Festival, the, the International Dublin Literary Award, then called the Impact. It was much easier. Do you remember this? You were outside the house. I think you'd either got a text or an email confirming the win. And you weren't sure whether you should go in and break the news or not. No, I, I, I got it at a bus stop, and I took the I took the call from Lisa Cohen, my my editor at Tram Press, and I said, okay, right, thank you, and and um, and then I got on the bus and I went home and I was thinking about it, and and I, and as I was walking up the drive to my house, I saw uh, Maeve, my wife, inside the window, and I said, geez, I better get this right. Uh, so I, ra so I sat down on the wall outside and I rang up Lisa again. I said, Lisa, did you really ring me up and tell me that I have won? Can I go in and give that news to the house? And, and she said, yeah, that's true. You did, I did ring you up and tell you that. Yeah, I, I could not believe it. I, I, um, I, was that, I, was that, uh, I was that startled by the whole thing. I hope you have such a moment, Paul, in a few yeah. weeks. <laughs> Because you won't be you won't be able to look at it on the phone and phone and check. It will be an announcement and a big dinner. Room, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's and you have to put a, have you have your poker face ready for that. I, I'm not expecting to win it to be honest with you. And so uh, if the mad thing was to happen, it's to happen. Yeah. You know, uh, I think it's terrifying winning the poker. Um, you lose a year of your life on it. I think pretty much is would happen. Uh, so yeah, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be signing your, your, it'd be a year in which you would be doing no writing. Um, <laughs> no writing at all. We're here because we're actually writers. We like, to, <laughs> we like to actually get to work, you know. One thing that I wanted to, obviously in, in the case of Solar Bones, there was the impact. There was also the Goldsmith Prize, which was 
it, which is about, um, I suppose, experimental writing, Solar Bones famously one long sentence. We didn't get to this in, in the writing of your book, Paul, that you, you don't separate out the dialogue or you don't separate out paragraphs. You have, it, it's in blocks. Yes, there's quite space between the blocks, folks, and there are chapter numbers, uh, if you like. What was the, how experimental a, a move was that for you, or what was the idea behind that? It's not, it's not that experimental, actually. There's a lot of fiction has published, mm. has been published like that. The, the key thing that's important is, and I think all readers should ask themselves, is why is the writer doing this? What, what choices have been made here? And I think I ask myself these questions all the time when I, when I'm, when I see if a writer has made a, a, a decision to, to do something unusual. I think that it, it must be justified in some way. It must speak to the, a meaning of some kind in, in the text. In Prophet Song, what I would say is going on is, is that it becomes quite clear that Eilish is caught up in the sense of events that are taking her with and she has nowhere to turn. Mm. And as the book deepens, you know, she's completely straitjacketed. She's making these enormous decisions, but, but the events, she's locked into events. And so the reader quickly realizes there's no breathing space here there's, there, because there's no room to turn. And that was precisely the case with Solar Bones. Marcus Conway, if you haven't read it, spoiler alert, Marcus Conway is the soul who is moving around his home between the Angelus and the One O'Clock News. Yeah. He needed to be one long sentence. It was, ask a question. You, as a writer, you're always, you're always asking, you, I always ask the book, what shape do you want to take? How do you want to be? Um, I'll stand back. You just write yourself on that. And um, so the book spoke to me as a, as a continuous unspooling of a single sentence. I think once I realized that it was a ghost that was narrating, I thought to myself, sure, a ghost would, a ghost would have no business with full stops. A, go, a, ghost, would, a, ghost, would, a ghost would want to a single unspooling, a ghost might trip over a full stop or dissipate at a full stop, so, so they'd want to keep going. And but, but they get rid of those full stops yeah, quickly. Yeah, and so that, was, that, that pretty much defined the, yeah. the style of that book. Well, congratulations on all those successes. I hope, Paul, that this is the beginning of great success for you. Obviously, the successes are there in the background, but it's a wonderful moment that we'll all be rooting for you. I think I can safely say not just the room, but everybody listening at home will be rooting for both you and Paul Murray on the night. The other Paul, yeah, fine, but it's one of our two Pauls. That, it, that, it, that, it, it'd be nice if one of us gets to bring it back home to Ireland. We, that, we that, certainly, that would be we certainly would be very happy people indeed. But that is all we have time for for, for this Arena Special Live from 1-1 Middle in, in Dublin. Thank you to both our authors, Paul Lynch and Mike McCormack. Uh, and thank you also to our musical guest singer-songwriter, Kriya. You'll find her music and details of her gigs on her Instagram account, at Kriya underscore music. Special thanks to the Dublin Book Festival director, Julianne Mooney-Ciron, and thanks, of course, to Rory O'Neill and the team here at the magnificent One Wind Middle Lane venue. 